Quantcast, cutting-edge conversations with the Quant community. Welcome, everybody, to a new episode of Quantcast, risk series of podcasts on quantitative finance. Mauro Cesar here, speaking from our London office. Today, our guest is Andrew McClelland, who is a director in the quantitative research team at Numerics in New York. Hi, Andy. Thanks for joining. How are you today? Good morning, Mauro. My pleasure. Yeah, very well, thanks. It's good to have you here. Uh, we saw each other actually only a couple of weeks ago in New York for Quant Summit USA. Um, in that occasion, you were presenting on CVA in the context of uh, benchmark rate reform. Today, uh, our conversation will be on something completely different. Um, but that topic was obviously of great interest. But uh, today, we'll be speaking about uh, initial margin and MVA, uh, margin valuation adjustments. So we have just published your paper uh, on the topic in Risk.net. It's titled MVA, Future IM, Initial Margin for Client Trades and Dynamic Hedging. You are one of the authors. Uh, the others are your colleague, Sergei Isakov, uh, who is a senior VP in the Quant Research Group, and Alexander Antonov, who is a former colleague of yours, obviously, who has just moved to Copenhagen to be a front office Quant at Danske Bank. Now, to start, I would like to get from you a background on, uh, on this issue and what problem you are tackling in this paper. Yeah, so I think to start with some background, I should, I should try to introduce uh, MBA, the concept of MBA, the margin valuation adjustment, in case, uh, in case people aren't um, you know, intimately familiar with it. Uh, you know, essentially what we're trying to do here is capture the cost of funding initial margin requirements. So when we enter into a trade with a counterparty, it's increasingly the case we're having to post and ask for, but more importantly for this presentation, for this discussion, would be post initial margin. And unlike variation margin, initial margin gives rise to a funding cost. It has to be funded out of the bank's own pocket. So there's a funding cost directly tied to the initial, initial margin that we're posting to our, our counterparty. Now, given that it's a cost, it's a cost of doing business, it's a cost of trading, uh, it's natural that banks are seeking to and try to reflect those costs in their pricing and in their valuations. And that's exactly what MVA seeks to do. So the margin valuation adjustment, similar to the, to the credit valuation adjustment, CVA, trying to reflect the, well, the, the, the embedded credit cost of entering into an, an, an uh, uncollateralized uh, trade with a, with, with a counterparty. Same thing for the funding valuation adjustment in, uh, as well. You know, there we're also looking at funding costs, but here we're basically that's that's more a matter of trying to uh, fund the, the hedge or fund the upfront uh, associated with a with a, with a trade with a counterparty. Here we're more interested in funding the initial margin that we're periodically posting and um, you know, reposting and, and um, adding to and subtracting from over the life of the trade. And just to, just to make it clear, I mean, I'm sure most people are, are familiar with this, but the initial margins, obviously, it's, it's related to the risk of the trade, you know, whereas variation margin and, you know, the, the hedge of a, of a trade, you know, the thing driving the typical funding requirements that are captured in SCA, it's obviously related to the value of the trade itself, you know. So if you were to buy, um, as an example, if you were to, to enter into a contract, buy a contract, and have to hand some, some money over, and it's not collateralized, they don't hand the money back to you, 
and the amount of funding you have is obviously, you know, it's 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 it's, it's given by the, the 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 value of the trade, the amount of money you just handed over. Whereas here, we're going to be worried about, okay, we're entering into a trade. Trade could have zero value, but you know, day day zero, we're having to post initial margin. That's a funding cost right off the bat, and we're going to have to maintain that. It's going to fluctuate, but we're going to have to maintain something like that. Um, over the life of the trade, it'll fluctuate and it'll decay depending on the trade type. But um, uh, yeah, so we're, we're, that's the funding cost we were worried about there. So you worked on this before. Um, in terms of research, where were you um, before starting to work on uh, on what is presented in this paper? Last year, we published a, an article with Risk Same Horses with uh, Sergey and uh, Alexander, where we were looking at okay, how are we actually going to forecast and simulate this initial margin requirement? You know, it's difficult. I, I likened uh, MBA to CVA, that we all know that for CVA, we're simulating exposures. Well, how does the value of the trade evolve? Here we're trying to simulate how the initial margin of the trade evolves. And the initial margin, you know, we can think of it roughly as something like a, a 99 bar over a 10-day window or something of that nature. We're talking about um, SIM for uh, you know, non-cleared bilaterally margin trades. We're talking about a sensitivity-based approximation. <laughs> to a uh, to a bar calculation. So here we're, our problem is basically how do we forecast these sensitivities and specifically these sim sensitivities over the life of the trade. You know, just in, just at, at time zero, valuing a trade is one thing. Computing the risk for the trade is something else. You know, something a little more complicated. Computing sensitivities in general is more difficult than computing uh, computing PVs. And you're talking about complicated trades, trades that don't have a closed form uh, sensitivity formula for sure. So for those sorts of trades, we were thinking to ourselves, well, okay, um, and, and it wasn't just us. A couple of other people were trying to, to tackle that problem as well. How are we going to forecast these initial margin requirements? Now, the route that we went down was we were to say, okay, um, when we're dealing with a, with a, with a complicated trade, so let me just say, uh, first of all, if we're dealing with a, a swap, you know, which is cleared and different initial margin rule, or let's take a swaption, um, you know, for for most European swaptions, for most models, we we have close form uh, pricing formulae and uh, and sensitivity formulae, right? So it, when it comes to time to to say, okay, I need to know how the what the future sensitivities are doing. It, so it's again not straightforward, but it's 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 less daunting a challenge than it is when we don't have formulas for the sensitivities, obviously. So. So what we're trying to do here is simulate some trajectories, each path, we're going to stop at each time step, recompute the sensitivities for this trade. Now for swaptions, we have you know, easy to evaluate formulae or, or good approximations. When I say swaptions, I mean Europeans, obviously. When we go to something more complex, like a Bermudan swaption, uh, it's often, often a good example to use here, uh, things, are, things are less uh, straightforward. So... Um, we think to ourselves, well, how? So we're thinking to ourselves, how are we going to uh, get these future sensitivities out for this sort of a trade? Uh, what is the solution you're you're presenting here then? Uh, for this article, it's basically an extension of that, right? So there are a couple of uh, competing approaches. Very, well, I shouldn't say that. Like a couple, there are a couple of approaches to forecasting this this, this these initial margin requirements. We figured, look, if we've We've got a, a way of doing that that's working quite well. We'll try to take it a little bit further. And it's also um, you know, something the clients are asking about. So, so what we're trying to do is 
we're saying, well, okay, you know, we're not just we're not just interested in saying, okay, here's a counterparty portfolio. Um, let's just say, let's just take that as a static portfolio and say, all right, give me the future initial margin requirements for that. You know, along each path, how's the IM going to evolve? Um, that's not exactly well. It's, it's a useful uh, question to to answer, but it's not it's not it's not the, not the whole picture. You know, it became pretty obvious talking to clients that what's happening in practice is they're saying, all right, well, you know, thinking about XVA, we want to capture the full cost of you know, the total economics, the, or the complete economics, so we, the, the full cost of owning this trade. Right, if the client comes to us, we want to capture all costs that accrue to us due to servicing this client, including any sort of hedging, any funding operations, capital, et cetera, et cetera. So in that, in that light, what they're, what they're kind of looking at is saying, well, okay, well, when, is, say, a client comes to us and wants to enter into a new trade, yeah, we're going to have to post them initial margin. But we're going to turn around, we're going to hedge this trade out as well. And chances are that that's also going to have an impact on our initial margin requirements as well. So it's not just what's going on on the client side, it's what's going on on the hedging side as well. Um, so, you know, a useful example of this would be, a really simple example would be, oh, client comes to us and said we want a European swaption. Simple, okay, great, we'll turn around, statically hedge that with another bank. So let's say, let's say that we're a bank in this scenario. So we turn around and we hedge that out with somebody else, of course. Okay, let's assume our, our counterparty is in scope for initial margin requirements. Uh, we have to post them initial margin and collect it from them. And we're going to turn around to our hedging counterparty and they're going to say, yeah, you're going to have to post us initial margin on this side as well. So there's initial margin being attracted on both on both the client side and on the hedging side of the trade. So, you know, that's, that's where we... Uh, we were hearing that sort of a conversation a lot. And, you know, other people have looked at the, the hedging side in particular, well, specifically in the context of uh, you know, cleared hedges. So the idea there is, okay, uh, a client comes to us. Um, they're not, you know, subject to the clearing mandate. They just want a simple vanilla swap, but they don't have to clear that. You know, they don't, they don't have the facility. You know, they don't have those sort of uh, capabilities available to them. They prefer not to. Okay, fair enough. We'll turn around and uh, we'll enter into that trade with them. No initial margin impact at all, right? So they're corporate, they're exempt from all of this. But when we turn around to hedge this, it's, you know, we're a bank, we absolutely have to clear our, 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 the swap that we used to hedge that. Uh, if we turn around to another bank, we enter into, a, enter into a cleared swap. Now we've got a situation where we've got a swap on a clearinghouse that's going to impact our risk position at the, at the clearinghouse. There's going to be an initial margin impact. So that that is a great example of, you know, a, a, sort of a, a special case, a simpler case where, you, where, the, where the client, where, sorry, the NBA, the initial margin impact is, is pushed, uh, is, is, is driven entirely by what's happening on the hedging side. So people have looked at that specific problem before and come up with analytical techniques, you know, for, for swaps in particular. Um, what we were hearing uh, from our clients was, okay, well, yeah, and, and, you know, we sort of took, took it and sort of ran with it from there. Uh, you know, in general, uh, well, the hedges, in, in general, we have some sort of uh, slightly more exotic structure with a uh, with client. A client comes to us or something like that. We're going to turn around. We're going to hedge that out. It's going to be a mix of both cleared and non-cleared hedge trades. So you're going to have a mix of both like sim initial margin and uh, clearinghouse initial margin and and the bigger problem is going to be, well, and you know that hedge isn't going to be static. You know, I might enter into a, let's say, again, a Bermudan with a client that's static. You know, we, well, we intend to stay in that trade until it, whenever it's exercised or it, it uh, matures. 
Um, I'm going to turn around and I'm going to, you know, maybe I'm going to be rebalancing. I'm going to be hedging that Vega hedging, for example, with a, with some European uh, swaptions and they won't necessarily be static. You know, those, some of those Europeans will may exercise before the burn exercise, right? You need to put more on, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So um, just as a, as a simple example. So in general, in general, you have a situation where the hedge is dynamic, right? I mean, I think that most people, um, you know, banks are, banks are rebalancing their hedging portfolios everything or every minute of every day. So, well, maybe not that frequently for all, but, you know, quite frequently. I wanted to um, to get a clarification on why you picked Exali um, to, you decided to go for an example on uh, non-clear Bermuda swaption, in particular one on interest rates in which uh, the risk factor uh, you consider only the uh, Delta and Vega related ones. Why, why does that suit your your uh, framework well? Well, I guess the real um, or the primary reason that we would uh, go with the Bermudan is that they're they're really they seem to be a good go-to, a good workhorse instrument for testing and uh, testing numerical techniques or experimenting with new methods in uh, in XVA. I think you know many 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 articles are looking at regression-based methods or, or CVA Greeks where regression methods are involved in these sorts of things. It's often, it's often you know, quite common to, uh, to use a Bermudan in those examples. Uh, I guess the, the reason for that is that they're, they're quite, they're well understood. You know, it's a, when we're looking, for example, at a, we start with a simple, simple trade, like a swap, okay, Everything's done in closed form. It's fairly straightforward. We move to a swaption. Again, everything's kind of in, in closed form. Then we get just a slightly, we, we move slightly beyond a European swaption. I should say European is, is still straightforward. We move beyond a European swaption, add a few more um, exercise dates, and then we're into trouble. Well, we're into, we're into complicated territory. Now we, we don't have closed forms. We don't have closed, closed form prices. We don't have closed form sensitivity. So um, I think I feel there's sort of a natural progression there. Uh, you could go with other instruments, uh, obviously. Um, if you, you could, but again, if you're trying to keep things simple, if you were a well-known instrument, something like a Ranger, even there, you've got path-dependent cash flows, and you've got other issues at play. Um, you know, and uh, so I think the Bermudans tend to be, you know, quite accessible, and the complications of the trade itself don't really get in the way of uh, of of, of uh, of trying to present the the details of the method or the technique that you're that you're trying to introduce, so I think that's probably and these things are very liquid. They're similar to cancelable swaps and callable bonds and these sorts of things. And you know, in terms of initial margin, uh, I guess that again you're going to have swaps which are for the most part cleared or not subject to bilateral margining. I would imagine I was saying just single currency swaps. Um, uh, then you'll have swaptions, European swaptions. Again, yes, uh, they'll attract sim initial margin or you know, bilateral uh, initial margin. Um, but again, as I said, you know, these can sort of handle these things. You can compute the sensitivities in closed form. Uh, but then you'll have, you know, just beyond that, you'll have Bermudans. And I think Bermudans are liquid enough to, that you could say, okay, they're out of the set of slightly more complex trades, hard to deal with trades, They'll be responsible for uh, for a lot of initial margin. Uh, you can quote me on that, but uh, you know I wouldn't be shocked if there were other hard to deal with trades that actually gave rise to a bit more initial margin. I'm not sure, but I, intuitively I'd expect uh, the Newtons to sort of register up there. 
towards the top of the list. And in terms of using interest rates, yeah, there's no real, um, you know, I, I think we tend to go with rates uh, for whatever reason. I mean, uh, and there's no real benefit to going with rates over something. Else. I mean, for rates, you're going to have delta, vega, obviously curvature as well, which relies on the vega calcs. For FX, you're going to have delta, vega, curvature, and everything else. So you're going to have the same, same, uh, what would you call it, same, same components to the overall initial margin uh, calculations um, for each asset class. And everything, you know, there's no diversification. It's all done independently, aggregated independently. Um, you know, the, the one issue with FX is, of course, you've got this um, slightly uh, delicate treatment of the notional exchange. But again, it, it, it wouldn't cause any problems for the overall methodology. It's, it's, it, you know, you've got to think about it, especially for complicated trades. How do you really tease out the impact of the of the notional, um, but you know, is to give a few examples. Uh, I recall for for sort of simple, simpler trades. So, I mean, it's, it's basically a matter of trying to generalise that. You've got your sensitivities. This method will produce all the necessary sensitivities. It's just a matter of trying to identify this is related to the notional exchange. This is related to cash flows, and then trying to separate those out. So there was no real deep um, philosophical uh, reason for going with rates. It was just more of a matter of convenience. So what are the difficulties you had to overcome to uh, compute the future initial margin requirements? Yeah, well, what we're doing is we're just, we're, um, you know, it's kind of like for a CVA, right? You need to know the future exposure. So you simulate mm -hmm. your trajectories. Along each trajectory, you stop and you recompute the value of the portfolio. So in this in this context, we're, we're literally doing um, the same thing. You know, if we were, we, if we were to use brute force, you know, in, at the end of the paper, we have those uh, comparisons. In those, in those brute force calculations, we're literally rolling along each trajectory, stopping, saying, okay, here's where our, our risk factors are. Let's recompute the sensitivities of this trade, the vega, the delta, and all the rest of it. And then we're aggregating. And you see that the two are very, you know, kind of similar. So we don't know the, we definitely don't know the initial margin, but we, we simulate and then we compute the initial margin, you know, um, along those trajectories. So, uh, you know, proxies are usually where, I mean, I think my, my understanding of, the, of proxying is, you know, you're in a credit example. I say, okay, I don't, have a, I don't have a curve for this particular counterparty, so I'm going to proxy it. I'm going to say, okay, it's an industrial, it's in this currency, blah, blah, blah. It's this rating, this guy's pretty close to it. I'll use that credit curve as a, as a proxy, you know, some, some sort of something that I can observe, which is kind of similar to it, yeah. Um, now, I would like to take a... Um, a step back and uh, and ask you more generally what is the risk for a bank um, if they if a jointly modeling uh, of uh, initial margin for client counterparty and hedge counterparty is not done um, is there a risk of uh, mispricing MVA what are the consequences of that you're absolutely right so that's that's what it would be for mispricing it would be like well again before we um, uh, without going into sort of deeper theoretical issues of whether you should be capturing these funding costs or not. Uh, I'm sure that will come up at, uh, in any discussion around, around funding, fund-related uh, valuation adjustments. Uh, but if you, if you do recognise that those costs need to be reflected, need to be captured and reflected in prices in some fashion, well, if you're ignoring, um, you know, for example, if you were just to completely ignore the hedge side, then you're obviously ignoring a cost, you know, like... It, I'm going to be with, in this trade for a certain period of time with this counterparty. 
Um, and I'm going to be running the funding cost related to the initial margin I'm posting on my hedging side. So you're absolutely right. If I, if I leave that out entirely, I run the risk of, of mispricing. Um, and if I'm not, you know, simulating, forecasting the behaviour of that hedge side initial margin, if I'm if I'm using heuristics, if I'm being too heuristic. I'm not. I'm certainly not against the use of heuristics. But if we're being too heuristic there, then uh, you know you're going to run the risk of having just a, you know, just just inaccurate expectations of where those funding costs could go so again again mispricing so you're absolutely right it's a mispricing uh problem it's the kind of thing that you'd sort of bleed value over time um as opposed to uh you know seeing a massive shift in your book you know it's not like you're omitting an important risk factor out of a portfolio of derivatives that could you know move your move the value of your book uh, uh, in a very short 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 period i see uh as you say in the paper, the debate on whether funding costs should be included in devaluation of a trade is still ongoing, which is uh, which is already quite interesting. Uh, you assume, or rather, you accept that the position that has been commonly assumed in the recent literature is that um, funding costs uh, should be incorporated in uh, pricing, at least uh, in part. Um, yeah. But in your experience, uh, you know, meeting with clients and just being in the industry. Uh, what do you observe? Is, they, is this the case in practice? Do do most banks or all banks include the funding cost in the valuation? Uh, yeah, first, you're absolutely right. This is a, uh, it's still a somewhat controversial uh, topic, you know, perhaps not as controversial as it had been uh, early on, uh, you know, in 2000, what was it, 2012, 2013 and so on. Um, but still, Definitely, definitely a, a topic about which there's 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 a lot of disagreement. Uh, in terms of what I I experience with um uh, with 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 our client base, our XCA user base, uh, you know it's it's hard to say uh, exactly what any of our clients are doing at any particular you know any one of our clients are doing in terms of their final pricing policy you know we produce uh xda numbers we produce and valuations we produce this is a, a clean valuation of the trade here's your fda here's your cva and so on so we produce all of these component numbers but the final pricing policy we we don't really i mean we're not involved intimately involved in exactly how those numbers come together at the end you know are they using dva are they using fda these sorts of things that It certainly varies from bank to bank, and we don't know exactly. Uh, we wouldn't. We wouldn't know exactly what they're doing. And I think, with with good reason, uh, some of these are uh, certainly some of our XBA traders, for example. They they're hesitant to sort of give up that sort of uh, information. <laughs> Understandably, right? So that's their IP. They've come to a they've come to a pricing policy that seems to work for them. They they can justify it. They they've checked that they're not you know. Uh, missing any costs and, and leaking value over a long period of time, but they still feel competitive enough in their pricing with their vis-a-vis uh, -vis their competitors. So yeah, it's understandable that they don't want to broadcast that to, to us, so that it could be, you know, it's it's, it's, a, it's an understandable, obviously an understandable um, uh, position. So in terms, but that being that all being said, um, you know, I, every single time I've been in an XVA meeting. Um, FCA is always a, an important topic. Everyone's always looking at what's your flexibility regarding the calculation of the expected funding requirements 
at what level of aggregation is the fund are, are funding requirements aggregated at what what level within the hierarchy you know is it at the counterparty level can we go higher etc cetera, et cetera, and all the stuff that goes on with that um, how flexible is your specification of the funding curve so you can see the people thinking about it absolutely thinking about it so i i, I if i had to bet i would say that they're absolutely pricing some of this in absolutely pricing some of this in but the reason we sort of equivocate in the in the article and say look at, at least it's you know, it could be all could be partial it's a, i just don't know and you do hear if you go to one bank and they say look i really think it should be done like this i disagree with this other point you, to, you take that sort of their their that sentiment to the next bank and they say no 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 no, no. <laughs> nice. that's just not going to work so there's a there, there really is a diversity of opinion there and I'll, I'll it might be useful to share um uh, you know, at least conversations had recently with one one. I won't say whether this is a client or whether this is just a uh, somebody somebody that we um, you know we regularly in contact with. We just yeah. mull over yeah. these sorts of issues. Um, so they are they're charging it. You know, they're certainly for charging the full funding cost adjustment. You know, they're passing these costs on to uh, onto the clients, or at least they were when we had this conversation. This is you know, this this is going back just a little while, and at the time that they, at least at that time, they they were. Doing that, they were they were passing it on, and they were very um, yeah, they, were, they were strongly of the opinion that the, their competitors weren't. You know, they felt that they were losing uh, on some deals. You know, losing on some deals because they were pricing it. I can't remember if they were pricing in the full fund, but I, I think it was you know a significant component of it. And they were convinced that they shouldn't be doing that. And they were engaged in all the internal discussions, trying to you know, is this something we really need to do? Or are we overcharging? Or you know, is there is there a justification for not doing this? Um, and you know, I think that again, you sort of you can sort of glean from conversations with other folks. I think they're having similar similar conversations. I don't think they're completely alone in, in that regard. We know, I mean, you know, again, uh, you know, there are always reports in in risk, you know, risk.net about. Uh, you know, FBA charges for these banks, et cetera. So these things are obviously being charged. It doesn't doesn't necessarily say that it's, uh, you know, this is due to them for charging the full funding cost or a partial funding cost. But, you know, uh, I, my gut feeling is that some of that, that some of those funding costs are, are are being charged on. I I don't think you could say that this is this is a a this is a um, a hard market practice. And one more thing on that. I mean. Uh, one of the one of the great things about uh, this job is, you know, we're 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 often out in different regions, right? I've, I've been back in Australia a couple of times this year, Singapore, Hong Kong, and so on. And uh, you know, I gave a few presentations on 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 MBA, and this topic came up. You know, this is this is a top. This is you know, I'm giving a presentation on forecasting initial margin, but <laughs> you know, inevitably. Few of the questions are just on hang on, hang on, hang on. Funding in general, should we be charging for that? It's just, a, it's a, you know, it's a very topical issue, and you can just see it. I mean, I, I don't even have to say anything. I just, I just stand back, <laughs> and you can watch people in the in the room just go at it. So, you know, <laughs> definitely still an ongoing debate. It's interesting that they uh, banks still have different views, opposite views on this, and uh, decide uh, to charge or not charge. Uh, I understand without uh, necessarily a geographical. Uh, division on this so the um, uh, banks in, in Europe and the US decided to charge and not to charge and then uh, well, all over the world it's uh, still uh, still pretty divided um, this is interesting uh, one last thing I wanted to ask you Andy is uh, sure. what you're working on so what are your uh, areas of research uh, currently or in the foreseeable future yeah so 
uh, when we when we met up at uh, at Quant Summit in uh, in New York, uh, I, I gave a presentation. You're right; it was on the CBA, um, and I was looking at uh, CBA in particular for uh, for tenor basis swaps. So CBA for tenor basis swaps was the motivation for the research. But what we're really trying to do there is we're saying, okay, first of all. The main risk factor on a tenor basis swap is the tenor basis, obviously. You know, the how, for example, the three-month curve moves relative to the six-month curve. So we we're, uh, you know, obviously that, that needs to be stochastic in order for you to get a sensible CVA number out. You know, you're looking at expected exposures on a tenor basis swap. You know, you're not going to get a sensible expected exposure if the if the tenor basis spread is just, you know, evolving deterministically, right? So I think that's, that's a fairly well-understood problem, but... We've, we've been working quite, uh, we put a, put a lot of work into a particular requirement that was raised to us by a, by a client, which is that, look, we'd actually, you know, we have a lot of this and we have a particular type of this. So we, we actually, we're quite sensitive to this. We want to model this up quite well. So, or, or quite, well, I shouldn't say quite well, but try to, try to, try to get a, a decent, accurate distribution of how these um, uh, tenor basis spreads might evolve. And one of, one of that, we, one of, one of, uh, one one aspect of the tenor basis behavior that would allow them to do that would be to make sure that tenor basis spreads don't, for example, go negative or at least don't go strongly negative. You know, the six-month curve should sit above the three-month curve typically. You know, the three-month mm-hmm. curve should sit above the overnight curve and so on. So, yeah, it's really a matter of, okay, well, what are the models available? Um, some of the different modeling approaches for tenor basis um, one that's very popular, you know, this multiplicative uh, framework. It's, you know, it, there wasn't, there was, there, there are a couple of suggestions as to try to bound as to how you might bound this. But you know, there's there's also a specific a particular type of these tenant-based models. It's very, at least, it was very appealing to me. It's very easy to explain. It's like a HJM-style model for one curve, each curve evolving HJM-style dynamics, and the spreads evolving according to HJM and and you know, then you, it's all amenable to the Shyette, um treatment and all the rest of it. And I thought, okay, well, I'm going to try and work within this framework and, and try to force those spreads to be positive. And that just gives rise to a whole uh, host of interesting technical uh, technical issues. Nothing ugly. It's just a matter of actually having to work through it all and um, you know, check your logic and all that. So that's very interesting. Also, commodity basis. Also, MBA. Um, trying to. Yeah, still, we're always trying to tighten up what we're doing on the MBA front. Trying to improve the way that these sensitivities. Um, again, one thing I should say here, it's important for MBA, we're forecasting sensitivities, we're differentiating through regressions. It's, it's important to note to, or to just keep in mind that when you're producing, um, you know, just if you have a, a nice regression set up and it's producing nice uh, pricing profiles, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to produce nice uh, smooth uh, sensitivity profiles. And that's true at, at time zero as well, for example. You know, if you're you're, you're pricing something by simulation, okay, we've got nice tight pricing, confidence intervals are quite tight, sampling distribution is quite tight. It's not changing too much as I, if I change the seed and run the same simulation, the value's not bouncing around too much. But you know, if you go and you try to compute like a pathwise value or something, differentiate through with respect to Vega, yeah, you, you genuinely, again, it's obviously trade dependent, but you shouldn't, we wouldn't be too surprised to say, oh, actually, okay, there's a bit more volatile, there's a bit wider confidence intervals now you know it's not the same as, as as the pricing differentiating against the vol parameter you know what does vol multiply with well uh, you know random noise right so you end up with just fundamental fundamentally more noise in in some expectations than in others so um 
you know, that comes up and that comes up. So, you know, you end up having to use a few more paths, well, a few more paths, <laughs> a, a couple of, uh, a multiple, you know, you have to basically say, okay, use a multiple of two or a multiple of three on the number of paths that I use to get really good crisp pricing functions out. I have to ramp that up a little bit. And that comes at a computational cost. So we're looking at sort of techniques. We're rolling all the control variant stuff and all usual tricks you use to try to try to get that cost back down. But it's still obviously, if you're going to something like 10,000 paths instead of two or 3,000 paths, yeah, okay, so that's an increase in cost. But look, comparing that to doing brute force, you know, and this is in the article at the end, it, it goes from, I can't remember exactly what the numbers were now, but it goes from being like under one second producing all the sensitivities to like whatever it was, a couple of hours for producing all of those sensitivities. So it's, um, you know, just a massive, it just worlds apart. Yeah. And, and, and it's very accurate, you know, it's very, very accurate. At least for the berms, you had very, very good accuracy with, you know, mm-hmm. sort of a, you know, a reasonable number of paths. So yeah, there's the MBA and there's obviously the AD Greeks, the algorithmic differentiation for CBA Greeks and, and things of that nature. So, uh, and well, and then related topics to that, you know, there's, there's a combination of, of the, computational side of things is also just the system layout you know you're pushing things up and down different layers of a system you know when you're propagating forward versus backwards adjoint algorithmic differentiation versus tangent differentiation yeah the the, the math is, is is complicated the, the financial logic is interesting but there's also just practical software issues that uh, that um, you know really do require a lot of attention so those sorts of things yeah so there, there are a couple of the, of the other things we're working on at the moment I see. There's a there's a a lot on your plate. Um, well, thank you yeah. very much for for sharing all this, uh, Andy. This has been very interesting. Um, um, as I said, the paper is online or is the net, and uh, it will be in print in the August issue of Risk. Uh, thank you again for being with us with us today, and uh, thanks everybody for listening. Mm-hmm.